Hello and welcome to the Investors Chronicle Companies and Market Show. I am John Human, editor of the Investors Chronicle, and I'm joined today by Bradley Gerard. How are you doing, Bradley? Good, thank you. I'm rested after a week away in Sweden. Lucky you, Sweden, eh? How was that? Beautiful. Expensive? Not as expensive as one might think. Maybe that's because I live in London. I don't know. I'm kind of used to heady prices for a cafe lunch, but yeah. Yeah. Oh, there you go. Nice weather? It was mixed. Mixed? We had some good sunshine and we had some quintessentially British weather. You should have stayed at home, like I plan to do next week. Okay, Uh, Ian Smith, how are you, Ian? Not too bad. How are you doing, John? Wonderful. You looking forward to your holiday? I really am. Your staycation? My staycation, yeah. Staying at home. Uh, Yeah, I really am looking forward to it because it's been a very busy few weeks and quite frankly, not a lot of fun. (laughs) (laughs) It's our service. Yeah, yeah. Um, There you go. Right. This week's cover feature is written by a former... Uh, Investors Chronicle journalist, who's now moved to Sicily. So he can't be with us on this podcast. But Ian, you've written about activist investing before, uh, and I did in my editorial, so we'll have a little chat about that and and the feature. Sounds good. But before we do that, let's talk about the news. Bradley, what's been going on? Yeah, absolutely. I guess um, on the subject of activism, there's there's a little bit of that going on in the news section as well. In in seven days, there's a mention of um, Value Act, which is quite well known now by um, UK-based investors for its stake in uh, Rolls-Royce. Mm-hmm. And it's obviously trying to agitate for certain changes in that company. And um, the recent move that Value Act has undertaken is to gain a stake in US bank Morgan Stanley. So it just kind of shows it's another kind of, um, although this is a bit more of a US tilted story because Value Act is American, so it's Morgan Stanley. It's just interesting, again, we're seeing these quite high profile moves by activist investors and you know people wanting to kind of shake up um, boards or shake up you know management teams. And um, it's a very interesting topic at the moment. And I guess it also kind of not necessarily activism, but I guess it touches upon really um, a very interesting story in a new section this week, which is um, between Cobham and Laird, who basically Laird's chief executive, um, David Lockwood, will be leaving to join Cobham. Um, he starts there in January next year. And Bob Murphy, who's been running um, Cobham, is going to be going to be leaving. So there's a bit of change going on there as well. And um, that's but have, have activists been involved? No, it's not really driven by activism, but I was just kind of linking it to kind of just you know, boardroom shake-up, agitation generally. There's obviously, I mean, something's obviously happened that, you know, Cobham's had a tough time anyway. It's not necessarily been driven by activism, that one, but... Yeah, but I mean, this, so the guy that's leaving, Bob Murphy, yep. said that he wasn't going to be leaving. Well, yeah, in the recent sort of, the most recent statement, there wasn't any sort of, um, you know, there was no... He didn't allude to the fact that um, his job was at all uh, unsafe at all or anything. So, which you might might be expected, I suppose. One wouldn't sort of um, you know, predict their own demise. Yeah, because they've had a few problems, Colin. Yeah, they have. It's been a tough. It's been a tough market, the defence market, and they've they kind of pivoted away from the aerospace um, sector, well, defen- they, they, or defence sector rather. Yeah, they pivoted towards the kind of commercial, focusing on the kind of wireless communications uh, for for commercial companies. But unfortunately for them, and this is in hindsight, it was just at the wrong time because we've uh, we've seen defence spending come back. So, and I would also say that David Lockwood at uh, Laird has done a good job in terms of the cost cutting uh, and the uh, operational changes that he's made there. So I can see why he's a good fit, considering the wireless link between the two. Given that this has happened quite suddenly and quite unexpectedly, maybe some of 
Cobbins major investors have had a say here. Well, yeah, I mean, hence my kind of um, chat slightly, slightly intangential link between yeah, activism yeah. and this. I mean, things don't things happen for a reason, and one would suspect that the challenges that Cobham has faced. I mean, obviously, some of those challenges that businesses face in the course of doing business they can't be avoided they're just the environment they're they're dealing with but obviously this pivot as, as Ian just kind of mentioned the pivot away from one sector towards another it hasn't fared particularly well and one suspects that there may well be as you say some larger shareholders who have been sort of saying maybe very quietly and not in an open not in a very American way not in a very yeah. American way you know more British way over a cup of tea or something mm. trying to suggest we're not sure about this strategy and I guess as a chief executive once you've gone down a road of doing something it's like a politician, I suppose. It's quite hard to U-turn. It's admirable if one does, and you can survive it. But I guess there's an element of that. Like, you've chosen your path, and you kind of have to, to a degree, stick with it. And maybe that maybe that's what's happened. I mean, that, that's all just posturing. I, you know, We don't know that for sure. We don't know why Mr. Murphy's actually leaving. It could be for uh, numerous reasons. But obviously, the fact that someone's been hired in his place on the same day is you know, obviously telling. There's been some work going on for a, a matter of months, yeah, quite frankly. one would presume so. So what we do know, however, I mean, the US activists tend to be a little bit more public, play the press quite well, a little bit more vocal in terms of what they want. Do we know why Value Act are interested in Morgan Stanley? I mean, have they actually said, this is what we want? Or have they just taken a big stake? I, I can answer that. They um, have talked about... Morgan Stanley has this corporate shift that a lot of the banks are doing towards wealth management, mm-hmm. seen as kind of a stickier business that couldn't provide good margins. But it's not quite clear what um, Value Act will do in terms of speeding up that strategy. I've read that there might have been some criticism of communication of that strategy. But... It, this isn't a simple business for banks in terms of trying to replace um, investment banking revenue with wealth management revenue. Lots of banks in Europe and in the US want to make this shift uh, and it's not easy. So I, I'm interested to see how Value Act think that by improving the governance or what they can push for. Um, do, they, do they want people on the board? Well, what they've been very successful in doing in the past is exactly that. So they, their most high-profile coup was getting um, their president on the uh, board of Microsoft, um, which was, um, I think, the first time in about 40 years that Microsoft had nominated to the board someone not appoint, uh, nominated by the company, mm. that they, someone had been put on the board. And this, this is detailed in this recent book by one of our colleagues at the FT, actually. And a previous colleague of mine, Owen Walker, has written this book, Barbarians in the Boardroom, where he talks about uh, the different US activist hedge funds. And that was the distinction I would draw between what we're talking about with kind of Cobham and Laird with the kind of traditional um, big shareholders having a say in the running of the company. When you have some of these activist hedge funds, sometimes the stakes they're taking are very small uh, in the companies that they actually massively influence and they manage to get a board seat even though they've got a very uh, small stake in the company. And the way Value Act has been successful in doing it as a San Francisco-based uh, activist hedge fund is by building its relationship with in- institutional investors. So because they own so much of the stock, it can use that kind of proxy power and they've lived that very well so I'm interested to see what happens at Rolls-Royce um, where I don't think they have been very open about the changes they want to see at Rolls-Royce. We obviously have reported widely on the problems that Rolls-Royce has faced um, with Morgan Stanley they have been a little bit more explicit but the, the it's not easy to run a bank at the moment in the current um, monetary environment so it's interesting to see whether they manage to encourage it uh, towards more of a kind of wealth management traditional banking business. Interesting. Mm. Let's come back to uh, to activism in a bit, uh, because it's a big subject, quite fascinating, and seems to be growing here in the UK. 
Yeah, we're seeing more mentions of it. And as you say, we'll come back to it. I mean, just, just on my patch alone, there's Stock Spirits, the Eastern European focused drinks maker that's facing a, or has faced an act- activist this, this past year. And um, Tosca Fund is also having a bit of a tussle with Speedy Hire as well. So there are, there are a few live examples at the moment. Yeah, no, no, no. It's, uh, well, I will keep my opinions to myself on whether I think it's a good or bad thing until we discuss it properly in about five minutes' time. Okay. Bradley, what else have we got? Um, yeah, I guess um, some kind of UK kind of macro news, really. I mean, obviously, we've had the Bank of England a few weeks ago, you know, inject further stimulus into the economy. And that's come now at a time when we've seen actually inflation starting to rise a bit. So we had the highest reading since the end of 2014. Yes, that was only a 0.6% reading, but, you know, small victories and all. Um, Bad news for savers. I mean, it pushes the, uh, the kind of real return on savings down. Further still, absolutely, and I guess what what that will do if that inflation, um, if that if it keeps ticking up, then I guess you have a greater, um, in, well, there's there's greater encouragement, I suppose, for people to invest their money and not keep it in cash, which is obviously what kind of or spend it or spend it, yeah, spend which I guess it. is the big great hope of central banks. Yeah, I mean, spend it or invest it, I suppose, is is the thing that the the authorities want us to do rather than sort of keep it in a, a very low-yielding bank account is or it, under our mattress. I mean, talking of spending, it didn't make it into seven days because I think the news only came out today, but UK uh, retail sales have proved surprisingly resilient in July. They have, yeah. And you know, we were bouncing this um, around in the news meeting this morning and just trying to sort of make a bit of sense of it obviously it's, it's one month's worth of data so that's the first thing to say about it so you can't maybe hang too much on it oh i thought two weeks after the referendum we were hanging an awful lot on the terrible service well, that came out oh, come on you can't have your cake and eat it bradley <laughs> well, well hang on oh, right, so, so anyway it's one month's data let's not get into a debate no this. i was just gonna say <laughs> lots of people were hanging things on the referendum uh, outcome you're right I know. We, we were not we were not. We have been very cautious. We were hanging only so, balanced judgment. Um, and so that we're bringing that balanced judgment again to this, uh, this so, numbers release. So one month's data. One month's data. Do we, the, know, do we I mean, what's, what's doing well? What's doing... Well, we're just various factors that could have an impact on these numbers and make them maybe perhaps more positive than they might ordinarily have been in a different month of the year. It's, it's summer, and I know Britain's summer is a bit sort of... Um, you know, hit and miss, but people will travel to the UK. It is a tourist destination, so there's the potential that is with a weak pound, so that could be having an effect. That yeah. could well be having an effect. And I have, I have read. I think there was another survey that talks about the uh, the tourist spend being substantially higher than it was a year ago. Yeah, and that makes complete sense with uh, the the very quick um, fall in the pound we've seen against the dollar and even really against the euro a bit as well. So it's the, quite funny though because you know generally people plan their holidays ages in advance. They just think, ah, oh, the pound has fallen. They voted to leave the uh, European Union. We're going to Britain. I mean, it does seem they might idea. they might be here anyway and then deciding on the level of discretionary spend, am I going to buy that nice handbag in Selfridges? Yeah, but they've already paid for their currency transaction. Let's get it on the credit card. Well, yeah, well, exactly. All right, anyway. And then another factor, well, you might have been about to say, is the promotional season. Yeah, exactly. It's um, well, there's, there's almost always a promotional season now, but yeah, you know, it's but there's always been a promotional season. It's, it's one July of the, sales. It's yeah, it's been around since I was a kid. No, I know, but at the moment, I'm just trying to say that everyone's got a sale on all the time. There's always a sale somewhere. But anyway, you're right. It's a traditional sale season. Mm. So there's also that element which could be helping the numbers look a bit more positive than they might well have done if, say, it was a September or something, and everyone's. You know, back to school and off their holidays and trying to save up again for Christmas. It might be a different picture, basically. Yeah, yeah. Unless they're year-on-year figures. They must be year-on-year. Of course they're year-on-year figures. Yeah. They are. Otherwise they're meaningless. Okay, so let's forget the July effect. Okay, so anyway, <laughs> decent, decent 
sales figures, which uh, defied expectations. I think there were some figures about uh, spending out in bars and restaurants in London as well, which had post-referendum been quite quite good. And that commiserating or celebrating. Well, that spending doesn't also- matter either way. <laughs> That spending was also quite strong through the last financial crisis, wasn't it? In terms of, are we saying that's an indicator? Um, That kind of spending. No, no, exactly. Well, and as we see here, spending on Prosecco and other sparkling wine has uh, been quite uh, strong, which actually also links to the uh, inflation figures, because one of the um, aspects of inflation was cost of imported wine from France. So the the, the message is drink English sparkling wine. Absolutely, it's very good. We've got uh, we've got a couple of vineyards. In fact, one of them is listed, isn't it? It's uh... Uh, Chapel Down is that the listed vineyard? Is Chapel Down, and there's certainly some unlisted vineyards, you know, in sunny Essex. Yeah, yeah, and actually next to the uh, the the pub uh, that we go to in in uh, Borough Market, there's a little English wine stall. I don't know if uh, I've never drunk there personally. I prefer the pints of beer in the uh, pub next door. But uh, but there you go, English wine on the up. Okay, what else we got, Bradley? Um, yeah, in the new section, I guess a, a good piece by um, Alex Newman, who also does all our commodities coverage, looking at the uh, the gold miners and how actually you know the the, gold, the rise in the gold price has certainly helped their profits recently. And so Alex is just kind of looking in this piece at the the prospects for some good dividends from that sector, and we know that it's a popular sector with a lot of our readers and listeners. So, well, it uh, certainly is now. That the gold price has been uh, been on the up for uh, it's in a bull market. I mean, gold price yeah. is in a bull market. It is. It's done very, very well. I, mean, I think it's the best performing asset class this year. It's, uh, it might well be, yeah. It's probably it up is, there I mean. with um, government bonds or something yeah, it, crazy. Indeed. Or <laughs> indeed. Um, silver has also done very well. Actually, silver's better than gold. I think silver. Uh, but yes, uh, precious metals have done extremely well. And the, and the guys that mine them, the cash is starting to roll in. It is, yeah. And Alex makes a, a, you know, has a great story here and just really sort of assessing the, the prospects of, um, you know, of greater uh, returns to investors. And we had, um, I think it's Hochschild, Mining reintroduced a half-year dividend um, this week, which was uh, represents twenty-five percent of net earnings. So that's quite a bullish return to the dividend roster. And um, yeah, it's a really good piece. It's really worth reading. And um, there are lots and lots of names in there, which is why I'm sort of not going to go through all of them. But um, yeah, Alex has done a really good job at looking at the prospects of um, greater shareholder returns, which obviously are an incredibly important component of um, total returns over the long term. Absolutely. I, th- I think the important thing that Alex notes here, and again, I'm not going to name any names, is that you know even in a gold bull market, some gold miners are going to perform better than others. They're better run than others. They've got a better uh, management of their cost base uh, and, and therefore a the dividends they are likely to pay will be that much more sustainable. So, so I think again, I read the piece. Yeah, it's not, it's not like, like a, it's not, it's not like a all gold miners will perform the same, and so whichever one you pick will be fine. As you say, the development, the stages of mines, yes. the, the cost Quality of ore. Yeah, exactly. There are there are many factors, but um, there's a general sort of uh, bullish sentiment around the sector. But yes, you can pick better ones um, for your portfolio. Absolutely, it actually impacted another. A company that's not a miner in the news section, H and T pawnbrokers. Um, oh, this is a result, wasn't it? As a result this week, yeah, um, which yeah. is just interesting because they um, sell some of the f- um, jewellery, the gold, and they have left over as, as scrap. They also have a gold buying b- business, so the lag between the gold they purchase over the counter and what they sell then in the market in a rising gold price environment, they uh, they benefit. Yeah, absolutely. And that's we, a we buy tip. any gold. Exactly. <laughs> They've had a tough time of it lately, these sort of businesses, but uh, maybe the time is uh, is now to have a look at those as well. I guess I get you know you've got this sort of gold price moves, miners move, and then some of the kind of ancillary businesses start to move, mm-hmm. and I think they must be one of the later 
gold cycle companies and, and it, yeah it seems to be coming an established uptrend now it does i mean talking to dividends uh hmm. so yeah the gold miners dividends coming back good news but dividends uh and ian this past is one for you uh given you're putting your pension hat on this problem that companies are paying much more in terms of dividends than they are in terms of topping up their pensions many of which are falling substantially into deficit of late yeah, exactly right. And that's um, kind of the, the, the general news angle, I suppose, is this kind of pressure at the moment on companies um, and whether they'll be pressured to pay more out in dividend, uh, sorry, out more into their pension schemes um, as opposed to in dividends. The report that came out of it this week from LCP, um, which is a consultancy in the pensions industry, did demonstrate that actually over the past few years, although we have been in this low interest rate environment, we haven't seen a big change um, in terms of you know, the amount that companies are paying into their pension scheme versus the dividends, which you might have expected to have seen. So we haven't seen a big behavioural shift yet, although we have seen the record payment by RBS into its pension scheme, which was... Um I haven't actually got the figure here. But they don't pay any dividends. So, uh... Yeah, well, exactly. So you could you can make that point. It's a feature uh, I wrote last year where we looked at this and um, trustees of pension schemes can actually have a kind of almost a veto power on companies' abilities to pay dividends. Um, so it is something definitely to be looked at in this lower interest rate environment, which has the effect of winding the deficit in the pension scheme and thus upping uh, expectations in terms of how much companies should pay in. This, that's an interesting point upon which we can perhaps get into the discussion about activism. So an activist investor, they're interested in share price returns, total returns. And in fact, Apple was a company where an activist took a, a very yeah, active interest in the company. I think it was, was it Carl Icahn who, uh, mm. who did that at the time? Yeah. And basically wanted, wanted Apple to start paying out more of its cash pile, its dividends. So I guess, you know, when activists are involved, what are they going to say? Pay money into your pension scheme or pay us bigger dividends? Yeah, the, the, one of the the common, most common gripe you hear from activist investors is that companies are just building up cash buffers that they don't need and they're failing to use them wisely, whether that is reinvesting in the business or dividends. I think some of them would disagree that they're always pushing for kind of capital return, mm. but they would like to see that cash deployed effectively within the business rather than used in kind of big kind of headline grabbing acquisitions or, you know, wa- value wasted in other ways. Well, I guess in the case of Apple, the, that cash was just sitting there essentially doing nothing. Albeit that it was it was situated in, in in the most part offshore, so it's very difficult to get back to the US without incurring massive tax bills. Um, but nevertheless, there was a the case for for actually that that cash started to be returned to shareholders in the form of dividends or buybacks or whatever it where it happened to be, and it took a bit of activism to make that happen. As it Buffett's taken a an increased stake in Apple this week, hasn't it? Yeah, you're right. He has. Yeah. Did we, we, did, we did write about that, didn't we, in the uh, yeah, tip we, update section? Yeah, we did. And that's probably more of a value point in terms of the share price fall. Yeah, Apple always looks like a value play. But there you go. Okay, so so activism is not all about necessarily then the short-term returns. And this, this I think, is what differentiates activism as we're seeing it today from activism as we may have seen it in the, say, the 1980s, for example, when it was actually more about asset stripping. Yeah, exa- exactly right. And I think, okay, it's not just all about capital returns. Quite often it is about getting value out of a company but in the sense that um, for example uh, activist investor might be pushing for the breakup of a company or they might be pushing against the breakup of a company one of the big um, high profile ones in the states was between starboard value which is a hedge fund and darden um, which runs restaurants including um, olive garden um, and none of which been anything to me none but, of which uh... were many. <laughs> well i think clues in the name uh, and also red lobster um which was a uh, 
at Darden decided to sell the Red Lobster chain, which was one of its most profitable chain, against the will of many of its investors. And mm. actually it was that dissatisfaction which allowed Starbull Value to um, kind of increase its prominence and, and eventually take over the entire board of Darden. So you saw an entire, the entire board of the company ultimately uh, replaced by people nominated by the, from the hedge fund. So that's an example where the hedge fund is saying, we don't think you're making decisions in the long-term interests of the okay. of the shareholders as opposed to just like you know year to year dividend return. Okay, so this is fascinating. So, you know, the the, the guys that would have made the decision to sell this aspect of that business, uh, Red Lobster, would have been the board. Exactly. Who are essentially employees of the company. They're not the owners of the company. Um, why have they made that decision? Which which none of the investors agree with. Well, so they will have their own M and A strategy. So they think they can use, they can better use that money elsewhere. They think that the group itself doesn't make it doesn't have cohesive self cohesion in terms of the different the nature of the different restaurants within the group. So they think you know they can better direct the money they generate from that acquisition elsewhere. But, but none of the investors agree with this. Yes, in in the sense that enough disagreed to get kind of a, a hedge fund an activist hedge fund to overhaul the company. So, but then you kind of, what it comes down to is whether you kind of agree with the corporate st- strategy espoused by the, the hedge fund, because it may not be right about the corporate strategy. That's true. I mean, investing is a subjective business a lot of the time. We often write in the magazine and, uh, about executive pay, for example, and the shortcomings of uh, executive remuneration schemes that do not necessarily encourage long-term thinking. So maybe sometimes an activist can act as a buffer against uh, decisions by a board that that may boost their bonus, but not necessarily boost the long-term returns. I mean, it's yeah, I don't know. I, I mean, know, I agree. And I think in this case also kind of shake the board out of its stupor. So it, why it was so high profile in the States was that Starboard Value presented this very long and in-depth report on how the company was operating that even went down to the breadstick policy in the Olive Garden restaurant the kind of breadsticks that they were handing out and how much that was costing and how they could change that. And this actually hit, because because this breadsticks policy was very popular with the users and continues to be of Olive Garden with the, uh, with the clientele, it actually hit national news. And obviously it was very funny the way that they were kind of quibbling with breadsticks. Oh, you're going to take our breadsticks. And the uh, hedge fund saw some backlash from the, from the kind of Olive Garden um, regulars. So it's quite interesting. They can get into a depth. What they were doing there with that report was saying, you know, some of the quality of the food is not up to standards. And have mm. you actually gone into your restaurants? So I think that's where it can be a very positive thing, um, which is say, get people closer to what, uh, get people on the board closer to what's actually happening, which actually you could say at the moment with one of the things that the current prime minister has said, which is getting consumers onto the boards of companies as well as uh, as, employee representatives, yeah, as well as employees, suggestion, yeah, yeah, but employees and also consumers. So that would be actually a step beyond anything that we've seen. If you actually say, well, okay, a consumer of this company's products has to sit on the board. What will that, you know, how will that work, and what will that tell the board if they are kind of a bit of a long-standing and stuffy board about you know what's going on at the ground level? Do you know we do actually have that in in some instances in the UK. So a little while back, um, as a commuter. And generally very angry about the state of the railways, as you've no doubt heard to uh, the nth degree on this podcast. I noticed one day an advert in one of the, the broadsheets for uh, public public members, public non-execs essentially, of the National uh, Rail Board. So they do have public representatives. I don't know whether it improves anything. 
but you know, I, got, I, I, can't, I applied. I got quite quite far down that process before I thought, oh God, do I really want to get involved in this mess? <laughs> <laughs> and then it will all be your fault. And they have a similar thing in pension fund governance where you have member nominated trustees of pension funds. And that's been a big movement within that industry to get ordinary people from the scheme to be trustees and have a stake in the decisions made. And yeah, they don't have the investment expertise um, of the um, professional trustees or of the other experienced trustees on the board, but they can bring a kind of common sense sense angle to it that kind of goes against this you know wisdom not wisdom of the crowd what's the opposite go against the kind of dominating domineering voices within the boardroom if you have to explain something to someone who doesn't understand what a multi-asset fund is you start to get into the basics of whether they understand what is right for your pension fund or uh, business so, so, so you know some way have looked at Theresa may's ideas here and said what a what a load of nonsense you know but it's actually happening we know it happens in, in the, on the continent certainly in germany there there are worker groups who are in very influential positions on the boards of, of some of the companies there say volkswagen i think uh, as, as an example adf i think um as, as two recent examples so so yeah this is this is important stuff and it actually can work so I, I'm, I'm, and it's a kind of form. It is a form of activism in itself, um, not the financial kind that we talk about in the cover feature this week, uh, written by Daniel Liberto. But yeah, it's uh, it's important, and, and all of it should, in theory, contribute to long long term shareholder return improvement. You would hope so, and I guess as you say, if you're having sort of um, you know ordinary people or workers on on boards of companies, and hopefully. It will, you know, decisions will be made that are genuinely in the interest of employees because as much as all executives and boards obviously try and do their best by business, it must be very, very hard after a certain point to truly know what's going on everywhere and how people feel. And so to have a conduit through which to kind of um, have that expressed to you would surely be a good thing. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I think for private investors looking at when uh, a hedge fund activist or another activist group has got involved, um, a good question to ask is whether you think they are in it for the short or long term. Now, we've discussed a lot of examples of when they've been interested in reforming governance in the longer term, but we've seen recent examples where hedge funds, um, these kind of activists, these same names, have taken uh, stakes in companies me- that have been taken over merely to get a higher bid price. So they've, you know, they've taken value stakes and then they've tried to use their influence to up the price. Now, they haven't got a long-term interest in how Poundland runs its business within the Steinhoff group. Yeah, but they, but they do have an interest in making sure it's not sold off too cheaply. Exactly and I right. I think that's, that's, that's a fair approach. I don't think that's carpetbag. I know. I think that's a, it's a good approach, you know, but it's, um, I think as a private investor, as you're saying, there are different types of activism is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. There's the shorter term, okay, we think this is actually a value stake. And a lot of these, if you look in the US, where obviously it is a lot more predominant, some of the companies, they don't ever get a board seat. They hold the stake for a while. And if they can't get the changes they want, they'll sell their stake, you know. And, and sometimes, sometimes at a loss, I think yeah. Daniel mentioned. Sometimes at a loss, but sometimes the very nature of a, um, an activist investor kind of joining, uh, investing in a company can start driving the share price forward. So sometimes they just take their winnings winnings and leave. So I think you need to look at what has been said publicly. And that goes back to that difference you were saying earlier about the difference between the US and the UK. And it tends to be the US a lot more out, is out in public. And in the UK, with a couple of notable examples, such as Elliott Advisors and Alliance Trust, um, it tends to be a bit more behind closed doors yeah yeah i mean but alliance well alliance trust i mean that that ended up being done very publicly well that's what i'm yeah. saying is the exception the big exception to the rule really yeah but you know elliot got what it what it wanted there and you know few could argue that alliance trust was 
was not in need of a shake-up. No, it absolutely was. I mean, yeah, and Elliot, as you say, Elliot, it ended up being a very public campaign. And um, I covered that quite closely at my, my former title. And um, yeah, it was tit for tat. It really was every statement that one made, the other rebuffed it and came back. But in the end, I think actually Elliot was... Their, their arguments were sound. I mean, um, Alliance Trust wasn't performing to its potential. It was such a large trust. Many private investors held it and there were good things about it, but there were things that could be absolutely made better. And although it's um, probably only a little over a year that Elliot has, has been involved now and the, the end result was they got two people onto the board of Alliance Trust, um, things are already improving from one of uh, the bits and pieces I've read. I mean, that's really interesting because, you know, these are, I mean, they're essentially hedge funds. And hedge, hedge funds who do not have the greatest reputation amongst the public. I don't know. I don't know why necessarily. I mean, I guess it's because they began their existence as kind of short-selling vehicles. But yeah, you know, a hedge fund is you know it's essentially an alpha-generating mechanism. And if that alpha is achieved through doing good like this, then yeah, perhaps hedge funds need uh, we need to reassess them. Yeah, I think respect. it's a, um, the, the word hedge for the, the phrase hedge fund is kind of also just. I think in the, the public's mind, it just has a negative connotation because there's a sort like of Damien Lewis in billions, isn't it? Well, exactly. The, uh, the shady, the shady practitioner yeah. lining his own pockets. But. Exactly. They're not. They're not pervade in the media often as um, you know, sort of positive, um, you know, good vehicles. But um, there are, as we you know, as we've obviously been discussing, there are some cases whereby if you're in a stock where an activist jumps aboard, it can be a good thing. Let's talk stock spirits because that's one that you you follow closely. I mean, that moved very quickly. And and how did that work out to the benefit of shareholders there? Well, in the end, actually, it's ended up with um, the chief executive ended up leaving and kind of not having the, the spat, um, not not staying for the, the battle, basically. Um, two people that were nominated by the activists um, were elected to the board, a, a vote, a, a general meeting. And there's been a new management team put into the key market of Poland, and um, basically, which is what they wanted all along, which yeah. was not how it's being run before. No, exactly. Which is where so a lot of the problems were coming. Precisely, from. yeah. <laughs> they were they were struggling in their biggest market, um, and the activist was effectively um, the, the activist. The activism was being carried out by a company which represented a chap called Luis Amaral, who actually owns a company which does buy some of Stock Spirits goods but not a very large amount and so Stock Spirits was arguing that well the fact that Luis Amaral owns this business that buys our some of our stock in some of our countries where we are present you know means he hasn't he's got a conflict of interest but um but he, he does I would argue I mean it's different from the kind of activism we've been talking about this is someone that represents yeah one of the client customers and has an interest in them selling um, the product more cheaply to him and, and you know, is pushing... And, and, yeah, he might disagree with the corporate strategy as well, but it's a corporate strategy that if it changed, he stands to benefit or lose from. That's different from a kind of San Francisco-based uh, activist firm just kind of turning up and, you know, who are also acting in their own interest. I, I think you should... It's true, it's true. Clear. Although, I mean, the, yeah. the actual impact on Luis Amaral's business of... Stock spirits it is very very small. Does yeah, that make sense? Yeah. So it's not sort of it's not going to be a, a huge win. And also, even if that is the case, that was very very that was made very clear. And yet, the, his proposals are still voted for by shareholders. So yeah. yes, there's a self interest there. That's undeniable. He will profit from um, potentially cheaper 
um, items being sold by Stock Spirits, but the overarching sort of move to just improve the business and make it more competitive and win in a market where it should really be winning because it's so dominant or had been dominant, um, you know, was obviously felt by shareholders to be sort of maybe the lesser of two evils, perhaps. And they had their results last week. And um, uh, yeah, the new management board is talking in the right kind of language that shareholders ultimately voted for in terms of cost cutting um, and taking the pricing strategy the way they want it um, and, and moving more of the governance uh, into the actual markets they serve, which, you know, does seem like a rational move, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. I, I really like it just fundamentally. I think a lot of management teams get away with not uh, having, you know, to be answerable to their shareholders without being scrutinised uh, appropriately. And, you know, I really do think that, you know, if this this uh, sort of sword of Damocles of activism starts hanging over them, I think, like, you know, a lot, of t- a lot of management teams will buck their ideas up and, and not before time. What, what we, we haven't seen the tick up yet. And that's the important thing to say. If you look at the number of activist campaigns over the past few years, um, 2014 um, didn't get anywhere near 2012. Um, and I think it's around 20 campaigns. But whether that ticked up in 2015 and now I suppose the question is whether it will tip up, tick up as a result of the pounds devaluation, mm. um, that could be, yeah, definitely an interesting shake up for some of these companies. I guarantee you, I bet the figures show that there has been a significant yeah. tick up. I mean, just reading across the results section, yeah, there, there are hints of activism all over the place, all over the place. I don't think it's a bad thing. I really don't, especially, as I say, given the ongoing debate about executive pay and what, what executives actually deliver. I mean, you know, when you're, when you're the chief executive of a company failing to deliver uh, share price growth, share uh, returns, even, you know, EPS growth, it, you know, basically you're not running your business properly. And it takes a non-expert from a hedge fund to come in and actually run it in the way it should be run. That's big, serious questions that some of the management teams we've got out there. Is that right? And William Hill was another example where the chief executive was seen as being a you know, barrier to the M&A activity that we are starting to see now, you know, rightly or whether that's rightly or wrongly, a lot happened after his departure. Yeah, that was a, William Hill's had a chaotic time. And, and again, we're not aware of any sort of overt activism necessarily. But as you say, there was a strategy that was outlined and it, it wasn't going particularly well necessarily. And then the chief executive goes and there's, you know. What is it? But it's not, I mean, you know, uh, Dan in his feature mentions G4S. Right. Now, now, I'm not aware of there being any specific campaign there, but there is a threat of a campaign from an activist called Sevian which has seemed to be enough to prompt them into action to do what the the the, uh, the activist actually wants. And, and, you know, I think that that's what I'm saying, sort of Damocles. It's like, if we don't get our act together, the activists will come knocking. I'm sure the other institutional investors were equally pushing, given the sh- fall in the share price and that we saw. Yeah, they, had, they had recovered since the Olympics and the tagging uh, fiasco, and then they kind of they get hit cyclically by... Was but that's what I'm saying. Brit- British investors, British institutional investors, are not known for uh, causing... T- too much trouble. I mean, every now and then you had you had a bit of a moan from from one of the big shareholders, but not very often, and certainly not publicly. And this is this is a very American way of doing business, undoubtedly. Well, there are a few European activists as well. It's an import that I welcome, actually. I mean, one of the reasons that. Owen, who I mentioned earlier, gives in his book for why the UK um, has been more quietest than the US. He says that 
the right to nominate directors and actually to call meetings are stronger in the UK than they are in the US. So in terms of that, those kind of outlets for shareholder uh, discomfort, we have those there. But it's be interesting now if people are saying, well, that's not enough. You know, I don't want to just be able to stand up at the um, yeah. annual meeting, it's annual just, general meeting. It's just all seen as a bit cosy. Yeah. Anyway, there you go. Right. Uh, lots of results this week. Not not an amazingly busy week. Certainly not in comparison to the last few. Uh, so, Ian, Brad, you've been on holiday, so you have uh, you haven't really uh, contributed to the results section nope. this week. Outrageous. Um, <laughs> BHP, I guess, is the big story. We're going to be, but let's not talk about that here because we've just released a podcast specifically looking at bhp and taking into account these results as well oh we got we got them in yeah so it's really topical and deep analysis of the company its markets we couldn't do justice to it (laughs) no no but there are plenty of other interesting little results here in um perhaps pick a couple um old old mutual which is going through its managed separation of its various businesses which also crops up in the activist feature interestingly oh interesting yeah i didn't see that yeah, I mean, so I mean, a classic example of trying to um, release value by um, separating businesses which serve different markets and have very little overlap in some cases, except for the fact that in financial services, scale is a good thing. Um, so it's quite a tricky thing disentangling a US asset manager from a UK wealth manager from yeah. a, a South African uh, financial services group. It was Sevian again. Uh, which is run by a guy called Christogardell, if I'm right. Uh, yes, who's known as the Butcher, a Swedish activist. He pushed for them to dispose of their Swedish uh, life operation. And I guess this, this disposal process is continuing. And there's good examples historically of how you can get value. It, was it called Great Grand Universal Stores? Or? Gus. Gus. Is that yeah, I can't remember yeah, yeah. Um, Which um, now, if you look at the market cap of the companies that were spun, that were kind of broken out of that, it's vastly larger, even accounting for um, kind of historical change, than the business was at the start. So there's good examples of breaking up businesses, but it doesn't always work. But yeah, Old Mutual is clearly one where it, it, it suffered in certain key markets and doesn't make quite as, as much sense. And I suppose what we're seeing in these results is the amount of cost they're managing to take out of the head office operations, which obviously must have been highly complicated given the spread of the group. Yep. So yeah, there's, there's clear costs that can be made. Okay, and uh, one other. Let's do one more before we uh, wrap up for the week. Uh, one more. Uh, Polypipe. Um, Polypipe. <laughs> clues in the name in terms of what it makes. What's um, it doing? It makes pipes um, out of the ventilation. It's actually been doing really well. They haven't seen any impact from the EU vote yet. There's still a strong demand um, in terms of new house builders wanting pipes <laughs> and other things. So it's, uh, yeah, it, we're still seeing in certain areas of construction quite a kind of a solid, a solid environment. It's yeah, and I, I look at that share price, and uh, it obviously sold off very sharply after the uh, the referendum, but it's it's bouncing back equally sharply. Yeah, exactly right. And um, Balfour BT. I was going to say, not as sharply as Balfour. <laughs> not as sharply as Balfour BT. It, yeah, even though Balfour BT, if you look at these numbers, you'd say, why, why is it bouncing back at all? But they really have worked through some of their legacy contracts and, and, and sorted a lot of those. So it looks like a lot of people are pricing in the recovery of Balfour BT. Yeah, a lot of recovery uh, stories at the moment that seem to be coming good. G4S, Serco. Uh, yeah, it's really they've taken a while as well. But yeah, exactly right. Just goes to show, eh? contrarianism sometimes pays off and that's something time in the market not timing the market well yeah well he could have should have got out of there but they got back in but no Theron actually Theron Mohammed he's kind of working on a kind of idea for a new approach to to some of our coverage at the moment which is he's looking at a more kind of how investment is seen in the in the cultural world and he's actually written something about contrarianism this week in in a little chronic investor column which is about basketball shooting technique 
I'm just it, about to join a basketball league, actually. Well, the, uh, yeah, well, it's the guy Wilt, you Wilt to, Chamberlain. Wilt Chamberlain, yeah. He started um, shooting basketball underarm. That's right. And then he, he stopped, even though he was more consistent underarm because he didn't want people to make but fun he's got, of him. He scored 100 points in a game. Yeah, it's amazing. But, he, but everyone was laughing at him, so he's... Slight, <laughs> it, was a slightly different, it was a slightly different league back then. I don't know if anyone watched the US uh, versus Argentina game, but uh, they're all pretty good now. I don't watch basketball. I was watching hockey. Oh, that was also very good. Yes, yeah. which is what I used to play. Historic. And, uh, yeah. yeah. You have what to watch I... it through your fingers, though. It's just so violent. I, do you know what? I, I just, I remember, you know, I think on the last podcast I said I wasn't really feeling the Olympics. Justin Rose's uh, hole-in-one changed all that. I was hooked <laughs> after that. Did you hear them singing Hockey's Coming Home? I did hear them singing that. I, 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 do, I loved playing hockey. I even dreamt. After watching the hockey, I dreamt I was playing hockey. <laughs> <laughs> Memories of yours. I loved it. It's a crazy game. It's like you say, you watch it through fingers, and they've got all this armour when they're uh, defending. We just used to, we didn't have any of that. Was, uh, School budgets didn't extend to that. They didn't. They didn't. And they wouldn't have had to pay for your teeth either. <laughs> <laughs> There you go. All right. Thank you very much. Let's uh, let's call it a day uh, so I can go on holiday. Simon Thompson has uh, done an extensive update of his bargain shares portfolio, which he released in February. It's up 17% in the magazine. It was up 19 the day after. It's moving so quickly. Uh, some of the, the shares bounce back. Uh, smashing the, the small caps index, the AIM index, the all share index. Value pays at the moment by the looks of things. Uh, we've also got an update from uh, John Rosier, who publishes our, our private investor diary. That, again, had a, a very good post-referendum bounce. And as we suggested at the time, he took the opportunity of the, the, the share price falls to basically fill his boots. And uh, it's, it's paid, paid off handsomely. Lots more in the comment section. Lots of results that we haven't mentioned on the podcast. The usual tips and tip updates. Lots in the personal finance section, which they will talk about on their podcast. And actually, lots of news, lots of decent aim flows this year. Little update on GSK. It never ends, does it? It doesn't. It's jam packed. Jam packed. Thank you, Bradley. Thank you, Ian. Thanks. And thank you all for listening. Boardroom Battles is the uh, the title of this week's cover feature. This week's magazine. It's four pounds seventy in all good news agents, or go online and subscribe. Thank you very much. See you uh, in a couple of weeks. <laughs> <laughs>